You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey, Dave, how are you doing today? Not bad, Nick. How are you? Fantastic. Couldn't be better, Dave. My favorite time of the year, every four years, right now. Well, this is the abnormal time. It's the World Cup's going on right now. So I got my uh, Team USA playing today. I got my jersey on, all ready for the game. But before we get there, we have uh, an important financial topic to talk about today. I know not much can take precedence over uh, European football, but but, uh, here we go, right? We're going to try. Okay. I was trying to see all the enthusiasm I mustered there. I was actually pleasantly (laughs) surprised by that. (laughs) All right. So, yeah. So, a couple of weeks ago, a client passed this article on to me. And I thought it was, I thought it was interesting and worth talking about. We've talked about fees and investments and taxes before. This article, this was from AOL Finance, and the title is 15 Hidden Fees to Watch Out for in Retirement. Yeah. So, you know, it's something that we are keenly aware of as advisors and financial planners. Uh, but I think the general public really kind of struggles with uh, what am I paying? Right. Where do yeah. I find that information? And, right. You know, so, so part of what piqued my interest and made me think, hey, this is a podcast topic was actually the context. This was a longtime client who had printed this article out and handed it to me at the start of one of our review meetings and said, go through this and tell me like how what I'm paying you and what we're paying for our investments fits with what this article tells me to look out for. Yeah, which is always interesting because I always feel like we are very upfront about our fees and Mm -hmm. what we charge and we don't try to hide it. It's on our website, but that, you know, clients don't always pick up on that, I guess, or or remember that. (laughs) Well, not, yeah, there's that aspect of it, but also the, the idea was, you know, we should reinforce these ideas pretty regularly with clients. And it was kind of, it, it actually served as a nice little checklist to be able to go through and say, this applies to you and this is what we charge. These things you don't need to worry about. Here's why. So yeah, it, it just, to me, after I walked out of that meeting, I was like, this, this probably deserves a wider audience than, than just that particular client. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so, unfortunately, the industry is kind of clouded in secrecy a lot of times yeah. about some of these fees. And so it's good to just kind of, have that conversation, make people aware of what's going on and, and let them understand how these different things might affect them. Right. And and as we go here, you know, AOL's article has 15 hidden fees. Some of these from our point of view are the same thing, just named a little bit differently or may overlap. So we don't quite come up with 15. And a few of them are really taxes and tax penalties that yes, they are a hidden cost to investments you need to be aware of, but they're not the same as a fee that an advisor or a brokerage firm or, you know, a mutual fund company is charging. So just to kind of, you know, put that out there before we start diving in. And in no way is this tax advice to not pay your taxes, (laughs) right? Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) Right, right. It's one of those fees that you really should just pay. Right. (laughs) Try to avoid it if you can, but if not, pay it, please. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So... 
Um, yes, awareness is different than avoidance. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the number one thing, the first item on the list in the article is advisory fees. And we're very much in tune to that because that's the main way we get paid, the main way our firm makes its money. Okay, you know, and this is an interesting one. So the article kind of talks about, you know, industry standard of about 1% mm -hmm. and how that might affect, uh, you know, your performance or the actual net returns that you get. And, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I guess there's two sides to this. If you are paying an advisory fee or a financial planning fee, I would, I mean, I think it's most important that you know what you're paying for and you know what you're getting out of it, right? Right. Right. Like we could make an argument that these fees are well worth it. Vanguard's gone above and beyond and do, does studies every year about how paying an advisor actually improves your outcome yes. um, in their research. But also, if you're paying an advisory fee for someone and you're not getting anything out of that relationship, that's not a great thing either. Right. Yes. And, uh, you know, we joke, we joke that when someone tells us we're too expensive, we tell them they're probably right for them. Yeah. You know, right. if, if that's if that's their main concern, then yes, they probably shouldn't be paying us what we what we require. You know, for this particular client and in the context of this article, it you know their advisory fee came in just a little bit below what the article says is average. And you know, for most of our clients, that's going to be true. You know, we have a couple different ways people pay us too, though. So it's not necessarily as cut and dry as just saying, you know, 1% of assets under management is, is average because some people pay us on a, on a net worth basis because we don't, we don't manage all of their assets or, you know, some people pay us different ways. So, so just to Nick's point to what you said, the important thing is understanding what you're paying and what value you hope to receive from that. Absolutely. I mean, and I think we have clients that kind of range the gamut, right? Where they would happily pay us more for the ability to, you know, sleep soundly at night. And, right. <laughs> and so, you know, there definitely, you know, what are you going to get out of it? And, and having yeah. an advisor is not the right solution or not the right answer for everyone. But for a lot of people, it's very helpful and very worth it. And one yes. of the things that we've done, and, and as you spoke a little bit about net worth, is we're charging more on net worth now, simply because what we're doing isn't necessarily just investment management, of all, right. right? That's a part right. of it, but that's not necessarily the most important. Right. Thing. So right. just kind of understanding your advisory relationship and what you're getting from the fees that you're paying. Right. So, so the second fee that the article discusses, they label it as 401k expense ratios. Really, I think that should be mutual fund expense ratios in general investment and expense ratios. And we've talked about this numerous times before, but a lot of mutual funds, particularly they tend to show up inside 401ks where they tend to a lot of times have more expensive funds. With a lot of those funds, you're paying a manager to pick stocks. For You're paying for active management that doesn't necessarily add value to your portfolio. And so... You know, we emphasize what we call passive funds with low expenses because we find that over time, those are the most effective tool. The number one way to correlate whether an investment, whether a mutual fund, you know, does, does well within its peer group or not usually comes down to how much the expenses are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, with the 401ks, you can almost take that a little bit deeper and and some of the stuff we're going to cover as well, but not all 401k plans are created equal. So like if you're in a large corporation, like a General Motors or something like that, they usually have really good investment options Yes, and they're pretty low costs, all things considered. Um, But if you're in a small, like if you're in a small business plan of some sort, a lot of times the fees that go to pay the actual setup and administration of the 401k plan are baked into those expense ratios. And so, you know, you really have to be careful around how much are you paying and and what what are similar options. Yes. And, and the, the problem I have with calling out particularly 401k plans is for most people, even a, even a subpar 401k plan is still going to be the best vehicle for them to save for retirement if their company offers a match or if they're putting away more than what they could in a uh, a regular IRA where they could invest in anything they want. So we've got to kind of be careful. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Oh, absolutely. I'd, I'd much rather have a match in a high expense ratio than a low expense ratio with no match, right? Right, right. <laughs> right. And I would also say, by and large, over the last 20 some years that I've been looking at 401k plans, there's been vast improvements, vast improvements. Mm-hmm. And that comes from consumers being more educated about what they're paying. Right. And what and what they're receiving for it. And so, you know, if you've got if if you work for an employer that has a subpar 401k plan, you know, start start being the the um the greasy wheel, the um squeaky wheel so that uh so that maybe you can help, you know, be the agent of change there because there is some latitude with employers and a lot of employers don't understand what their 401k plans actually cost to employees. Absolutely. The third item on the list is an interesting one for them to break out, but it's it's 12B1 fees, which are part of expense ratios usually. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the 12B1 fee is typically how your financial advisor gets paid. And so... <laughs> Similar but different to an advisory fee, kind of the same concept, but a little yeah. bit different in that it's baked into the cost of the mutual fund. It's yeah. not separate or, addi- or additional to the cost well, of your funds. Yeah. You know, so as a, as a registered investment advisory firm, we charge a separate advisory fee and we don't use mutual funds that would have 12B1 fees. 12B1 fees were originally designed as like a marketing fee that mutual funds could use. But what they did is they started passing that on to brokers every year. And it's usually like on on funds that have them, it's usually about a quarter percent. And so traditionally, those would be your funds that have front end loads, which we're going to get to in a minute, where the advisor gets paid a commission when they make the sale, the broker gets paid a commission. And then those 12B1 fees are kind of meant as an incentive for them to take care of that client down the road. Right. And so they're similar to advisory fees, but they're not exactly the same. Yeah. And I I think that's an important and kind of one of the reasons why it's probably broken out or important Mm -hmm. to know is that if you have a fund with a 12B1 fee, 
that means that you're paying an advisor or a broker to take care of that for you. And so if you are paying that fee and yet you're not using that advice or broker, Mm -hmm. then chances are you can find the very same fund that doesn't have that 12B1 fee or find a very similar fund that doesn't have it and save yourself that cost if you're not actually using that advisor. They're becoming less common. Yeah. More and more, even on the uh, in the brokerage world, you're seeing advisory fees charged as a separate fee with 12B1 fees kind of going by the wayside. But they are still out there. Yep, for sure. So group four, and this is, this is kind of a broad nebulous category of fees, but annuity fees. And so, you know, I guess I would preface this by saying Annuities have their place. They can be a tool. And we've talked about ways you can use annuities to create guaranteed income or to transfer some risk in your portfolio to an insurance company. But there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Those, those, those either guaranteeing your income or transferring that risk to an annuity company, just like when you transfer the risk on a car accident with your car insurance, it has a cost. And with annuities, it can have a couple different forms. One is most annuity portfolios have what are called mortality expenses built into them, mm-hmm. which is an annual expense that covers the fact that they're guaranteeing if you live longer than planned, they'll you know provide income, right? Right. And then there are different fees attached to the riders that provide guaranteed income. Yep. Or that provide guaranteed death benefits that often outweigh whatever benefit you're going to get from them. So you need to be cognizant of that. And then variable annuities that are built around separate contracts, which is the annuity world's version of mutual funds, tend to have higher expense ratios than built into them as well. So you've got to be cognizant. You can have several, what it, what it boils down to is you can have several layers of fees within an annuity if you're not careful and you really need to pay attention so that you're likely to get value out of what you're paying. So without going too far into the weeds of, you know, the different types of annuities and what the fees will look like, and, and maybe this is a topic for a different podcast, Dave, but on the variable side, the other thing that is tricky for people is where it doesn't necessarily have a commission, a lot of times it'll have a surrender charge. So you have to keep it for a certain number of years. And if you take it out, then you get dinged on the back end, you know, a certain percentage if you take it out within usually five, seven or 10 years. But unfortunately, I've seen some as long as 20 and 25 years. So there's, (laughs) yeah, there's everything in between, right? You know, so essentially, traditionally, when you sign the paperwork for an annuity, the insurance agent that sold the annuity to you gets paid right up front, right away by the insurance company of a fairly substantial commission. And so, Yes, if you surrender that annuity early, the annuity company needs to recoup what they've paid someone else right. already. So they're, they're going to have that, generally have that schedule built in. Now, the annuity world has tried to, hmm, I don't know, maybe I'm putting this wrong. Several new annuity offerings out there look and behave more like investment advisory accounts where there maybe aren't surrender fees. There's no commissions involved. Instead, there's ongoing asset management fees. 
And, you know, they're starting to look more acceptable from that point of view without the commissions and the loads. Yeah, I mean, similar to what we've seen in kind of the investment world, there's been some, you know, downward pressure on fees and they've become more competitive and stripped out some of the bells and whistles and costs that are built into those kind of high commissions in order to kind of provide a more level playing field for in the RIA space. I'm still pretty young, but we're seeing more popularity there. Which has been useful. You know, we've, we've used some of those advisor-oriented annuities for clients that had old existing annuities where the tax cost of getting rid of them would have outweighed any reason to, you know, that we would have had on the investment side. And we've been able to use advisory-oriented annuities that do not have surrender fees and have effectively cost, like effectively priced mutual funds inside them. So they are out there. They're coming along. Yeah. I would just say, you know, as a general rule of thumb, tread lightly if you're mm-hmm. looking at an annuity and maybe look at a couple different carriers and maybe even get a second opinion. Well, um, it's definitely not yeah. right for everyone. And it's with the fees that are built into those. And because they're so inflexible, you're kind of locked in for a lot longer than maybe you were thinking. And so it may or may not be the best route to go. And just like anything, it's really easy to make them sound like they're just fantastic. But just remember, there's no free lunch. If there's a benefit, there's a cost. And it's up to you to decide if that cost is worth paying for the potential benefit. And so just keep that in mind. You can leave it at that. So the, the fifth category, they, they just call yearly fees. And, and we've already talked about advisory fees. We've talked about 12B1 fees and some of these ongoing fees. So I'm, I'm, you know, reading the article, it's hard for me to differentiate where they're, what they really mean for that. But the, the main thing is just making sure you're aware of what you're paying. Absolutely. I think it's just, you know, one of those things where if you're going into and checking and figuring out what your existing fees are. And then also if you're thinking about making a change, kind of comparing your current fees to what the new fees would be. So the sixth category is loads. And traditionally mutual funds will charge an upfront load, a commission. And so if you're investing $10,000, they might have a 5% front end load. So that 5% comes right off the top when you invest. And the next day, your portfolio is worth less that 5%. And the idea is you would own that mutual fund for a long time and hold it. And that 5% would get made up in the performance over time. It's funny that it just seems antiquated to me because we don't deal in load funds, but they are, you know, they are still the the main way mutual funds are bought and sold out there for folks that aren't doing their own thing. I've always looked at it that, you know, yes, if you were 25 years old and you pick the right mutual fund for your situation and you stick with it for the next 40 or 50 years, okay, that load was probably fine. But that's not the way we see people handle their finance and their situations in general. And the other thing from our point of view is that created a conflict in a way. If that broker sells that mutual fund to you, you are now their client usually, their name's on your statement. But the only way they're going to get paid is back either that 12B1 fee that we talked about a minute ago, which is small relative to a commission, or they've got to sell you something else. 
And that was always the issue is, are you better off paying an advisory fee and not paying for the investments themselves? Or are you better paying a sales charge, a load to buy something and not pay, you know, advisory fees? And just on the face of it, and I've heard this argument from the commission world, from the brokerage world. Yes, if people bought one investment and stuck with it for the long haul, they would pay less than if they paid ongoing advisory fees. The problem is most people only hold the mutual fund they pay a load for for a few years and then they're paying a load for something else. And this kind of goes back to our conversation about advisory fees and ongoing support. And, you know, you're right. If you bought a loaded fund and stuck with it, that would be one thing. Um, But the reality is, A, people don't. And B, you know, you're basically tying yourself to a single mutual fund family. And as we've seen in this industry, as in any others, um, you know, there's ebbs and flows and some of these mutual fund families take a turn and don't do very well. And then you're kind of, you're married to them, right? Because you already paid the load. And so anything else you do, if you do it through the broker has another load where, you know, if you were going to find something that didn't have a load and stick with that fund family on your own, you might look for a no load type of fund or an index fund or an ETF. Yeah. And we've always felt that we served our clients better charging that advisory fee, even if they end up paying us more in the long run, because it removes that layer of cross purposes. Right. And that, and that conflict, right? If we find something yeah. better for you, we, it doesn't change our pay. <laughs> right. Just say, yeah. hey, this is way better for you. Yeah. Let's go this route with this yeah. part of your portfolio. And that this comes conflict free because we're not making a commission on it. If we do make a change, it's only if it's in your best interest. Item seven on the uh, AOL article is just the broad topic of taxes. And Mm, yes, you can think of taxes as a hidden fee in your portfolio. I don't know how hidden it is. And there's a lot of different taxes involved. So this is kind of a broad topic. But yes, you need to be aware of if you're using, first of all, what type of account should you be using? Should you be putting money in a Roth in a regular traditional IRA, a 401k retirement account or after-tax account? Because all of those have tax implications. And then if you are investing after tax, you need to be smart about what kind of funds you use that those are in turn tax efficient. And, you know, it's one of those things where not necessarily hidden, I don't think, but if you're not paying attention to it, right? Like here's a great example. Um, You know, you've got some funds in a taxable account and your advisor says, hey, you should really switch these, these new funds. And so now all of a sudden you're getting whacked with a load and come next year in April, when you're doing your taxes, you find out not only did you pay a low, but you also had to pay, you know, a chunk of change as a tax. And so that can kind of compound compound things for you. And so just being aware of how these accounts work. And, you know, there's oftentimes, Dave, where we have clients where we have a better option for them, but we don't pull the trigger because the tax ramifications are more detrimental than the difference of the investment. Right? Yes. Yes. And so and, uh, understanding that and being able to make those decisions is super important. When a when a client, a new client comes to us and they have existing taxable investments out there, a lot of times we're creating a transition plan to get their portfolio where we want it to be that may take a couple of years. So yeah, you need to you need to be cognizant of that. The uh, the next 
category they talk about is actually kind of a subcategory because it's technically a tax, but early withdrawal penalties, which in a nutshell, if you put money in a retirement account and you take a withdrawal before you're 59 and a half years old, you may be faced with a 10% surcharge tax penalty on top of whatever taxes you would normally owe on the distribution, unless you fit one of the exceptions. So, and, and also just, you know, being aware that that's out there, but also not all plans work the same way. And so, you know, there's some different plans that you can start taking out at 55. And so if you're thinking about retiring earlier and needing to tap into these, there's different ways to do it. Just making sure you're aware of it so you don't make a mistake is important. And there's some formulas and things you can use if depending on the plan you're in. Yes. And, you know, and there are exceptions for certain needs rather than going to details right now, I would say, you know, if you're going to put money in, what I like to tell people is if you're going to put retirement money in a retirement account, intend it to be there past, you know, whatever date you would need to um, either 55 or 59 and a half or whatever, depending on the plan. Don't put money in there thinking, well, I can use an exception to get it back out. Because even if you can, you're kind of defeating the purpose anyway. You know, don't put the money in there with that mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, you know, part of the reason for the penalty is to kind of incentivize people to put money away and keep it there, right? And so that it's there when you need it in retirement. Number nine on the list is trading fees. Those, uh, so we talked about loads already with, with traditional mutual funds, but, you know, when you buy and sell stocks or exchange traded funds or some no load funds at certain brokerage, uh, certain brokerage companies, you're going to pay a trading fee, which is nominal usually compared to a commission. You know, we, we used to call them ticket charges that, uh, you know, it might be $10 a trade or $25 a trade for certain types of investments. So, you don't want, it, it, and now there's several, there's long lists at most firms that don't have any trading costs. So, you know, again, it's not that they're necessarily bad. It's just that you need to be cognizant of them. If you are going to pay a trading fee, make sure it makes sense. Yeah. And this used to be a lot bigger deal than it is now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been this huge fee compression with online brokerages, you know, the TDs, Charles Schwab's, Fidelities of the world. I actually, when I first started in the business, people would ask me if I would buy a stock for them. And I'd say, sure, but it's going to cost you 75 bucks. If you go to E-Trade, right. it's going to cost you nine. So, so you might as well do it there, right? <laughs> I don't have any good insight to yeah. be worth that extra $70 right, fee. Right, so you right. might as well do it All there. All I'm doing is pushing a button for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And now they're all much closer for the most part. You know, at the end of the day, they're not nonprofits, right? You know, they're, they've got to make their money somewhere. And so just as an example, in our managed portfolios, we have mostly funds that trade with no transaction costs. But we do have a couple in some of our models where there is a transaction cost because there is no, we feel that the investment thesis behind using a particular fund outweighs the $25, you know, $45 ticket charge, depending on which fund we're talking about. And um, but that's a conscious decision that we've arrived at with the help of, you know, some CFAs that are very good at analyzing these investments. And we're also always watching along with them to see if a option comes along that doesn't have a, that trading cost. And the other, the other way we deal with it is that's our standard is to use, you know, a couple funds. But then we've got a whole set of models that have just no transaction fee funds 
that maybe where we use those for smaller portfolios or portfolios that make a lot of contributions or distributions. So there's a lot, you know, every month there's trades, those ticket charges on those couple funds wouldn't be worth it for somebody that's taking a distribution every month. So we don't use those funds in that portfolio. Yeah, so a lot of thought and effort goes into kind of figuring out, is this fund worth it given the ticket charges compared to the alternative, right? So if it's something where you're you know, putting together a portfolio, you want to be aware of those things and what that looks like. So number 10, this, this one is technically a tax as well, but penalties for failing to take required minimum distributions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so in Thanks. general... Once you reach age 72 now, you need to start taking money from your, your uh, retirement accounts. Yep. And uh, if you don't, the penalty is 50% of what you were supposed to take. Yeah, that's a steep hit. So yeah. it's definitely something that you want to make sure you're paying attention to yeah. and, and taking that money out of. Now, I've never had anybody who's had to pay that fee. Even I've had a couple that were administrative. Take it, that yeah. had to beg for forgiveness from the IRS. Right. And but the IRS has been fairly lenient on that. Uh, again, not tax advice. Don't you know intentionally yeah. try to get away with anything, but don't panic either. Talk to your tax advisor, and uh, there's yeah. there's some paths right. to. Uh, Turns out the IRS is pretty friendly when you self-report an error to them. And, right. And yeah. And, ta- and take especially and the take, first time. Right. Yeah. And if you take action and. Uh, you know, so just in general, the other thing I would say about required minimums is people tend to sweat them too much. They're usually, you know, we get 68, 69 year olds that are really afraid of what's going to happen when they hit 72. And we do the math with them and it's like, oh yeah, that's pretty much what we were planning to take that year anyway. Right. And, uh, you know, it's not nearly as big a deal, but uh, yeah. so don't, don't stick your head in the sand and ignore them because yeah. you're well, worried. You know, we have clients too that aren't intending to take any money and probably don't need any money, but it, sometimes it's good for them to get that because they do things that they otherwise maybe right, wouldn't yeah. because they're required yeah. to take that money. Yeah. So they feel like, well, I guess we'll spend it. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of different ways to look at that, but definitely be careful of the uh, early withdrawal penalty <laughs> or excuse me, the uh, not taking your RMD penalty. So, so number 11 is a subset of the annuity fee discussion we had a few minutes ago. And, and they're calling it just annuity rollover fees in this article. But what they're really talking about are those surrender fees for getting out of a contract early and then moving to a new annuity that restarts those fees. And we see that sometimes with folks that get some interesting advice from, from the annuity side where they're moving from one contract to another. Yeah, you know, I kind of wish they would have taken off the word annuity and just put in rollover because I think it's annuity wise, right? So like a lot of times after your seven years, if you've got a, you know, somewhat shady broker financial planner, they'll sell you a new annuity because there's all these new things that happened in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And that's why this new one is so much better. But a lot of times it also comes with a higher fee, right? Yeah. So making sure you understand maybe you're paying 3%, now you're going to be paying 4 is that worth it? Are those bells and whistles worth it? And I think the same thing could be said for the 401k world of, if you've got a good 401k plan, understand that if you roll over and start paying advisory fees or commissions or 12B1 fees, chances are you're going from a place where you're actually paying less fees to Mm -hmm. a place where you're paying more fees. 
And that in and of itself isn't necessarily bad, but you have to understand that and make sure it's worth it for you to kind of have that advice and it makes sense to pay more fees based on where you are and what your what services you're getting on those. And so then 12 is also a related item and they're just calling it surrender fees in general. And so, yeah, if you own an annuity that does have a withdrawal penalty on it, or if you own, boy, are there even B-share mutual funds still out there anymore? I hope not, but I, I, I wouldn't surprise me if yeah. there was. I, I, they, they pretty much were legislated away, I think, or regulated away back maybe yeah. 10 years ago. But it used to be you could avoid paying the front end load on mutual mm-hmm. funds by agreeing to pay a surrender fee if you got out in the first seven or eight years. Yeah, and, miraculously, uh, it was never better for you than... <laughs> Right. The right. The right. Yeah. There's all kinds of interesting math that went on with those, but yeah. So it, it led to a lot of deceptive practices too, was, was part of the problem. If you have an investment that does have a surrender fee, it's probably an annuity that we're talking about yeah. and you feel you need to get out of it, just weigh that in. But the thing, the interesting thing with annuities is again, those ones that have the surrender fee. So say you've got Say, say you're halfway through the surrender period and you still have a three or 4% surrender fee, it's probably going to about equate to what the additional costs are in the annuity if you hold it for the next three or four years. You right. end up in the same place. You're just, yeah. you're just paying it now instead of paying 1% a year extra. Right. You know? so, so sit down, do the math, talk to an advisor that understands the contracts and maybe doesn't have a stake in whether you stay there or not and yeah. uh, figure it out. But just be, be aware of it. And number 13, this one's kind of, in my experience, it's been kind of rare, but they tell you to be aware of inactivity fees. And I think that's mostly going to be on self-directed brokerage accounts at uh, like retail. You know, if you open your own account at E-Trade or somewhere, that if you don't, if you don't make any trades for a certain amount of time, they start charging you a maintenance fee because then they're not making any money if you're not making any trades. Right. Right. Yeah, something to be aware of. But like you said, it doesn't happen as often anymore. And But it's certainly something. And usually you'll get alerts. So make sure your email and your contact yes. information is up to date because they will usually tell you it's coming. And you can Right. And, and that's a good point too, because I think the most recent thing like that that I've seen is a client was told they were going to get an inactivity fee unless they opted for electronic statements mm-hmm. and... So essentially, the the brokerage firm was was saying, at least you know, don't make us you know pay fifty cents a month to mail you a statement if we're right. not going to do anything. <laughs> and so you know, so so to your point, you know, pay attention because they'll they'll t- they have to tell you if they're going right. to start to do that, and there may be an easier way out than just closing the account or, um, you know, making trades you don't want to make. Right. Um, you may be able to just opt for electronic statements or something like that. Yeah. And actually, you know, that's a, a fee we can add. We'll, we'll add another one to the list, but there has been a lot of motion for some of these brokerage firms to start charging for mailing stuff. So yeah. if you're yeah. comfortable getting electronic statements, a lot of times you'll end up not paying that fee. Right. Uh, it just depends on the brokerage firm. A lot of these right. like online brokerage accounts, if you go paperless, they don't charge anything. If you don't, they charge you like 10 bucks a year or something like that. So yeah. Something to be aware yeah. of. Yeah. So um, number 14 is 401k administrative fees. Mm-hmm. And um, that has been rising 
largely because of the other side of the teeter-totter that we already talked about is, so 401k providers used to make most of their money on 12B1 fees and mutual fund expenses. Right. And we've seen fee compression there. So, so 401k plans are saying, well, if we can't make money on the 12B1 fees, we're going to have to charge you $50 per account or right. something like that. And so we have seen, in fact, um, we have got a lot of clients that, in the Michigan State University plan that now has a fee be, you know, for some of their accounts because they've eliminated some of the more expensive mutual fund options that were in there. And I look at it this way, you know, a fee like that that's going to be posted every quarter is transparent yep. and doesn't necessarily go up every time I add money to my account. Whereas if they're being paid out of a quarter percent of my assets every time, they're making a heck of a lot more money from my account than the $50 a year or whatever, $20 a quarter or whatever they decide to charge. The difference is, is the, the salience of it, right? Right. And you need, we need to get over the psychology of, oh, I just hate seeing a $20 a quarter fee on there because really that $20 a quarter fee is probably, if you have an account balance that's that's anything substantial is probably a lot less than what you were paying before. Right. Or would be paying under other circumstances. Yeah. And you know, the one thing I'll say about 401k administration fees and 401k fees in general is just be careful on some of that stuff because what I'm seeing sometimes now is there'll be like a baked in 50 basis points, like admin fee. So you'll look at your fund lineup and say, oh, look at these funds are great. But then you don't necessarily notice that 50 50 basis point admin fee. And also another tricky one, Dave, is a lot of times there's advisory fees that go on. So you might have like a moderate portfolio option. And if you check that, they'll create a moderate portfolio for you, but they'll also charge you a fee for it. And so that's not in its of itself a bad thing if you're able to then access an advisor and get some additional help. But if you're just paying that for the portfolio, a lot of times a target date fund can do something just as good for a much less price depending on what they're charging on those. So you just got to kind of be careful of where the fees are coming from in your 401k and what your options are because a lot of times it doesn't necessarily seem like there's an opt-out feature on some of that advisory stuff. Number 15, their last one on here, they're lumping, they're calling it a beneficiary fee. And I, I've, I find it a, a little disingenuous. I think it's something we need to be cognizant of. But what they're talking about is if what you're leaving is, is an inheritance, is an IRA, then your beneficiaries are going to have to pay some tax on. I'm going to go on the record here, Dave, and say this is my favorite fee. And if any of our listeners want to leave me a large IRA, I would happily pay the taxes on it. Right, right. <laughs> but maybe, maybe I'm just the oddball out there. But you're right. It's definitely something in the grand scheme of things. If you have kids that you want to give IRA money to, that's, mm-hmm. not, that's not a bad thing. But there may be some ways or some planning you can do around taking that money out and as far as the, how the taxes are paid, when they're paid and what the best way for them to get that money is. So you're maximizing. Yeah. And, and think about your estate plan holistically. First, think about what you want to do for different entities and people. Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes like if like we've had clients that have, they want to do some charitable giving from their estate, want to leave some money to their children and some money to their grandchildren. And they may have a mix of different account types. You know, you can, you can strategically go in and figure out what to leave to whom and be smart about it and maybe reduce, maybe maximize your overall gift by leaving investments that have a higher tax impact to a charity while, you know, your, your children that are earning, you know, in their prime earning years are inheriting some more tax efficient things instead, you know? Yeah. That's kind of changed a little bit with the, uh, what act was that? CARES Act? What was the, that changed? Yeah, no. One of those. The 2019 tax reforms. Yeah, it's got a it's got a cool catchy name. I just can't think of it. Yeah. But anyways, now instead of spreading those payments out over your lifetime, your non-spouse beneficiaries have 10 years to take that out. And so that compacts the tax issue a little bit. And so it's worth taking a look at if this is money you want your kids to have. Does it make sense to start taking some of it out and pay the taxes at your rate so that they don't have to condense it down into 10 years or... Roth conversions, lots of different strategies that you can use to be aware of. But I would say only if like, I I would only recommend a strategy like that if you knew you were never going to need the money. And so that was your utmost goal is to pass as most on to the kids as you can. I kind of view it as more of a put your own air, you know, air mask on first, like get through your own retirement. And if there's money left over, great, we'll figure out a way. But and I wouldn't start like taking distributions out at 50 um, because you're worried about your kids paying taxes in 40 years. With As with everything, it's about balance. And uh, so so that covers everything in the AOL article. We'll throw a, throw a link on, on the uh, show notes to that actual article if you want to see it. Um, but I think, I think it was good. Uh, again, you know, we highlighted some things that maybe they thought about a little bit unusually, but... Um, it certainly covered everything I could think of. Yeah. You know, it was a good conversation and I, you know, it's just one of those things that it's not, if you're not in the business, if you don't look at this stuff every day, you might not know what a lot of these things are, but you should be aware of what the ones that affect you are and have that conversation with your 401k provider, your advisor, anybody that's kind of helping you with this stuff. You're online brokerage custodian so that you know what those are and you're making the best choices for you. If you have questions around that, feel free to shoot us an email at info at srbadvisors.com. And I think that is about it, Dave. It better be. We're at about 45 minutes. so uh, A lot of fee talk. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. It was fun, Nick. I will talk to you later. Until next time. Gather round and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.